there was so much written about it. And yet it seemed like everyone in the world fell into one of two camps and felt so insanely strongly about it. And it's like, wait a minute, how is there no agreed upon truth between these two sides? I had seen a bunch of tabloid reporting about the case. There's one article in particular, something like laughing, smiling on trial for murder. And it was a picture of Amanda looking back towards, I think, where her family was sitting in the courtroom with a big smile on her face. And I thought you could just as easily headline that knock smiles at family. And the meaning and the feeling and emotion it would give you would radically change just by changing the headline. So much of the way that all of these stories get reported and the way that it generates feeling and intense emotion in people is based on how it's framed for us. So what if you could look at how that framing actually happens? Who's doing that framing? That's interesting. I thought my only way out was to kill myself. I didn't know what else to do. I went into complete shock. I disassociated. They see it as entertainment. They don't see us as real people. The online sleuths, you know, I've got a very complicated history with that group. My stories have gotten people freed from prison. It's helped catch killers. There is no standards and protocols for how to handle any of that. And so you end up just chewing on the same nonsense until you're deep in a twisted funhouse of mirrors. Somebody asked, is it disrespectful if I wear something that has blood spatter on it? It sells newspapers, it sells magazines, it gets viewership. And that's what it's all about. It's money, money, money. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Blood Money, a Labyrinth miniseries. That was Brian McGinn you heard at the top of this episode. You may recognize his voice from part one. He was the co-director, along with Rod Blackhurst, of the Netflix documentary about Amanda's case, and he has produced and directed numerous other projects, including Chef's Table. Last episode, we explored the role of victims in the true crime ecosystem. This time, we're looking at the incentives, pitfalls, and philosophical knots facing true crime content creators. We're starting with Brian McGinn, who, like us, is coming at the true crime genre from the outside. I never had any interest in making a true crime film. I've never been interested in the label of it. We started making this film before Serial, before Making a Murder, before the commercial side of quote-unquote premium documentary became such a true crime factory. The interest wasn't really in kind of making a genre film, it was in telling a story that we thought was really compelling and that there were new angles and new points of view to share. And one of the things that had interested me about the, I'm going to refer to it as the Knox case, which sounds very weird considering I'm talking (laughs) to you guys, but it's just the way that I refer to it forever. One of the things that had really interested me is how the narrative in the public sphere emerged almost separate from the narrative that was actually happening in the courtroom. And so I really wanted to explore some of the different ways in which public opinion and public narrative and the way that we tell stories about crime, how that ends up funneling back into the courtroom (laughs) in Mm. these strange ways and affects the legal system. How do we come to believe 
what we believe so strongly and how do we trick ourselves and those around us. Yeah, you didn't make an armchair sleuth sort of film. You know, you talk <laughs> no. about your interest in human psychology and how people come to believe what they believe. Do you feel like there's a social commentary element to the film that you made? An ethical commentary, yeah. perhaps? <laughs> I think that there probably is, though it's more grounded in what I care about personally and my personal view on the world than I think it is a mm -hmm. shaking my fist into the ether kind of You're approach. not actively hoping that society changes in some particular way? Maybe I am not a believer that documentary film mm. is the way that that happens. <laughs> I think that for me, telling any sort of story, my goal is always to find some way of connecting with other people or understanding other people better. And I'm not sure that it's effective to go, you're wrong, and here's how you need to change. Can I ask you a question just about documentaries? Like, why documentaries and not Marvel movies? Like, what got you well, into no one's that? called. No one's called me from Kevin Feige hasn't called me yet, so. <laughs> but in like the sense that like you're deep, deep, deep in reality, but in a really highly produced, thoughtful way. And that's kind of a newish thing. You either were PBS or you were reality TV for a long time. And then something like the Man and Ox documentary comes along and it's very much in that opening world of like, oh, wow, these premium documentaries, when I don't think that always existed. Well, I studied documentary in college. My professor who taught documentary also had been Jeff Nichols and David Gordon Green and Danny McBride's professor. And so essentially studying documentary was a way for me to have a one-man film school from this teacher, Gary Hawkins. Hmm. I never intended to do documentary as a career. I didn't get into documentary because I had aspirations to use documentary to change the world. And I certainly didn't grow up watching PBS documentaries. I fell in love with Errol Morris's work in college. And then I had worked a lot in comedy after school, which you would not know from all of my pretentious <laughs> food work and serious true crime documentary work. I actually did sketch comedy for a number of years, auditioned for Saturday Night Live, didn't get that job and went, oh my God, what am I going to do for work? And that was when I started making documentaries. And for me, they're just another way of telling interesting, compelling stories. The difference is that there's a larger layer of responsibility to the people that you're featuring. And of course, to the truth, but I guess to the truth also implies that you're making a film where the goal is to get to the truth instead of to get to revealing character and to exploring personal stories. And I would say I make films more in the latter category. And so I feel like a lot of my responsibility, unless I'm making something that purports to be an investigative thing, is to the people that are willing to share their stories with me to make sure that I'm reflecting those accurately. But there's also a layer of trust and responsibility that you have there to make sure that you don't, that someone's contribution to the story that you're telling doesn't get destroyed in mm -hmm. some way. Yeah. One of the things that was important for us in making the film was showing it to each of the people who were part of it before it came out. Mm. And the reason for that- I still appreciate that, that so much, by <laughs> the way. <laughs> but one of the reasons for that was we didn't want whatever conversation happened after the film was released to alter someone's point of view 
hmm. on how they were portrayed or whether they thought it was an authentic right or real version of their story. And so that doesn't mean everything being included, obviously, but it just meant that it was important for us for the people at the heart of it who had been willing to share their story with us knew what the world was going to see before the world did. Mm. And we don't ethically or journalistically change anything in the film as a result of that, unless there are legal issues. But what it meant was that everyone had agreed and acknowledged that what was in there was their story to some extent. And so then it meant that if the internet went crazy after the movie came out and people started attacking folks, which did happen, that at least we knew to some extent there's nothing that we could do to control that secondary conversation mm -hmm. when the film is being released in 200 countries all around the mm -hmm. world. All we could do was to hold up our end of the bargain in terms of our responsibility to the subjects. I think. Mm -hmm. How common is that? I have no idea. I mean, we do it with Chef's Table, too. The difficult thing for us was that the Kircher family really didn't engage with us throughout the entire mm. making of the film. And so ethically, I think we struggled a lot mm. with how do we portray her? Mm. How do we handle the crime scene material, which mm -hmm. is really gruesome? Yeah. And I think that to some extent, because there is no standards and protocols of any sort for how to handle any of that. We just had to go by our gut and hope that that sufficed. I have no idea whether it does or not, but that's probably the thing that makes me the most uncomfortable about telling a story like this, especially a violent story, is how to handle portraying violence, I think is really difficult. Yeah. And there's also the question of whether to tell the story at all. Amanda mentioned a little bit ago about how she said no when you guys first approached her and you guys walked away, which I think is really interesting because plenty of other people have, and even recently, even as recently as a few months ago, there was a BBC thing that came out. Amanda refused to participate in that, and that guy tried to guilt her into it over and over again. And it's like, well, we're going to be making this no matter what. Don't you want your voice to be a part of this thing? Otherwise, we're going to have to tell it without your voice. And there's that sort of threat to try and bully people into participating in something. How do you feel about all that? I actually, after making this film, I did sign on for another project where my company and I were not in control of the outreach and actually mm -hmm. on a project that I was attached to, there was one of those messages sent. And when I found out about it, I was just aghast. I, I still feel really bad about it. Mm. And I think the other part for me, there's sort of two answers to that question, which is for me creatively, I really like making things where the main people involved in the story are actually participating in it. I don't have a ton of interest in making the chip around the edges kind mm -hmm. of stories. And I think that's probably led me to make a lot fewer things. It's a lot harder to thread the needle of something that's commercially viable enough that you can get people to pay for it, but also has the people at the heart of the story right. in it. But that just personally, for me, I find those stories more interesting. Maybe with a bit of ego, I feel like I can get interesting things out of those people that other people can't. That's my one bit of self-belief. And so I continue to kind of press forward with that stuff. I think it's really hard to avoid a bit of a 
a moral and ethical quandary when you don't have the participation mm. of anyone, unless the film is not really about the personal character of mm. the subjects, and it's more about a series of events, then I think it's totally fine. When you're doing documentary of any kind, you're dealing with the real world. So there's some, you know, you need fidelity to reality. And when you have this added pressure of, we have to make it artful and we have to make it thrilling, is it ever at odds with the, well, I'm portraying reality here? Does that create a conflict? I think, especially in the legal world, court cases are so boring. <laughs> like, it's hard to imagine anything in the world that is more boring than sitting in a courtroom for a trial. Yeah, for like years. About pretty much anything. Yeah. <laughs> so is there is there some conflict there? Of course. I think the question of whether that conflict is a problem or not comes down to what is the goal of the project? Is the goal to make money, to get paid? Is the goal because you want to make something that connects with people and lasts? Is the goal a more activist-driven goal? What is the goal? And then I think it's a little easier to assess from that mm. point, like, what's the conflict? I think participating in any story where you're telling your own story, you're making a trade, right? Mm. You're saying, hey, I'm bargaining that this person is going to approach my story in this way, or it's going to reach this number of people. And the question is like, are you correctly analyzing what you're going to get out of it versus what it's going to cost you? Right. I think that's very difficult. And I think there are a lot of people who are not thinking through that trade sort of in the same way that a lot of people go onto reality TV shows thinking, oh, yeah, you know, sure, they might make some stuff up or edit me in an interesting way. But they're not thinking about what that's going to mean in their lives post fame, shall we say. So the relationship between a documentarian and their subjects is really interesting and complex. Because the documentarian, depending on their point of view, either has a specific message that they want to share, a narrative that they want to tell, or they're exploring to try to figure out what that's going to be, and their goal is to tell a really interesting, complex story, or their goal is just to use the person's story to turn something around fast and make money, right? Then the subject might have wildly different aspirations mm -hmm. and intentions behind participating in something. Amanda, I don't know your reasons for participating in the film. I'm sure there were many. But like, it might be to bring awareness to wrongful convictions. It might be, I mean, at that time, the case was still ongoing. You had just been reconvicted. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of the goal was also like, oh, God, I got to get my story out there. Or this is the this last is chance continuing. that I, yeah, this is my last chance to maybe tell my side of it because <laughs> right. they might put me in jail again. <laughs> right. So those are not necessarily overlapping goals. Mm -hmm. And yet, in a strange way, everyone kind of ended up hmm. getting what they were hoping for out of it. I would even venture to say like Manini felt really good about his perspective being represented in the movie. And I think he felt fairly portrayed, whereas he had been vilified by the American media. Yeah before that. And so I think that if a documentary is made with care, hopefully the outcome can be a positive one for everyone or almost everyone involved in it. Should we talk about the business side of it? Yes, please. Because yeah. I think that's also a really interesting 
thing in this moment in time in that every streaming network is trying to find ways for people to keep watching and staying mm-hmm. engaged with the streaming network. So we've entered a really interesting period of time where what interests a storyteller might be wildly different than what mm. a network needs. Mm-hmm. So what happens if you need something to happen in the first two minutes of a film or a TV show to keep people watching, mm. which is really what you need when you're putting something on a streaming network? People have 8 million options. Yeah. You have to have a hook. Mm. That's like the new way of making a story, right? If you don't have a hook, why are people going to keep watching it? Mm. So I think we've entered an even more interesting time period. And now we have a totally different way that we're all consuming this media. And the prerogatives of it are wildly different than on linear television or cable television Mm. or in movie theaters. And I think that what you're seeing now with the glut of quote-unquote true crime stuff, is that true crime is also really working to keep people engaged. And that continues this cycle of like, wait, if we know that showing a bullet hole in a piece of poster art gets people to click on it, Mm -hmm. how does that affect the ethics? (sighs) Man. What are the ethics involved when the people making the thing don't have any control over how it's portrayed or marketed? Mm. I think that we've now entered kind of a different era where when Arrow was bringing out Thin Blue Line, there wasn't any question of like, oh gosh, are people going to turn off this movie if it doesn't have a hook within 30 seconds? Mm -hmm. And what happens if the first thing that you see in a movie is a falsehood that's Mm. put there to make you keep watching and then three quarters of the way through the movie, you learn that was bullshit. Right. I feel like Making a Murderer and Serial are both technically well-done things. But I also find them to really trade on this. And you know from Serial that basically at the end of every episode, Sarah Koenig is like, I don't know, I think maybe Adnan did do it. And oh, wait a minute. Now no, I really didn't. think he probably didn't do it. <laughs> and it's just constantly pulling you. Whereas In the Dark, by contrast, is very clear up front that Curtis Flowers is innocent. And there is no game, did he or didn't he do it game being played the way Serial is playing that game, the way Making a Murder is playing that game. And the dynamics of the streaming market forces you to tell that story in a way where you're constantly teasing that who's really responsible, is this guy guilty or not, variable. And it's a very different way to tell a story. And I'm not sure which one is better or worse, because if you had a million serials with people that are that good at telling stories, how many more people did serial reach than in the dark? Right. And so what's the actual end result of serial? I think you come away feeling like he did not do it. Right. Any of these formats can be utilized for good or evil. Mm. (laughs) Right. And that's kind of the crux of why there's really no answer to any of this, right? It's all in the hands of who's telling the stories and who's listening. What we're really starting to realize is the one thing we can be definitively sure about is that there is a bottomless appetite. Mm. (laughs) Bottomless appetite for it. And that people will click on anything that triggers that kind of primal, Mm. ooh, crime story thing Mm. and i think that's i don't know i think that's it says a lot about human nature
Brian McGinn gave us a glimpse into the documentary world, but we also wanted to know about a more traditional medium, print journalism. So we called up someone who could help us better understand crime reporting, the most OG form of true crime. My name's Nikki Wisensee Egan, and I'm an author and an investigative journalist. I actually started out as a political journalist. I went to college at UNC Chapel Hill and double majored in journalism and political science. And so I started out covering campaigns, and then I moved to D.C., and I was a reporter there. And then I got hired by the Philadelphia Daily News as their Washington correspondent when I was 24 years old. And I transferred to Philadelphia because my mother was dying of ovarian cancer. And I wanted to be able to get back and forth to see her more quickly, and they lived in Vermont. And what that meant was, because there already was a political reporter in Philly, that I ended up being general assignment. And what general assignment generally meant was a lot of crime. So that's how I started covering crime. And I wasn't really thrilled about it. Uh, my brother, my only sibling, had died when I was 16 and he was 19 in a drunk driving accident. And I remember seeing a story in the local paper about it and they got all the facts wrong. And I thought, yeah. boy, if a reporter ever showed up on my doorstep, I wouldn't have spoken to them. Right. I was kind of horrified by it. I just thought it was very intrusive. And I actually had a colleague in D.C. who had been a cops reporter in Milwaukee and just loved it. And I was looked at her like she was nuts. So that's what happened, but it was my job, so I had to do it. And the one thing I did find is that there were a lot of communities that really wanted the coverage. And the way we approached it at the Daily News was it was like we were writing an obituary. Mm. And that's what I would tell people. Like, we just really want to make sure that people know who this person was beyond how they died. But covering crime doesn't just mean telling the stories of victims. It can also mean publishing the names of persons of interest, which was what Nikki's editor told her to do. I asked a cop source once, I said, why do we call them persons of interest? He said, because if you call them a suspect, they lawyer up. They have rights when you call them a suspect, so you have to right, call them something exactly, else. <laughs> exactly. We want to trick them. We want to make them think we just think they're a witness, you know? Yep. So they ended up reinstating tuition reimbursement at my company. So I started getting my master's in criminal justice from Temple University while working full time because I just wanted to try to make sense of the senseless, as I call it. I didn't want to just do sensational true crime coverage. I wanted to do more in-depth pieces. Yeah. I ended up staying on the crime beat. I did more investigative stories as time went on, or I always tried to in between the breaking news. I almost wanted to make a joke at the very beginning when you said, oh, I did re political reporting. And I was like, oh, so true crime. <laughs> but <laughs> right. but um, how would you say political reporting is different than what you typically see in true crime reporting? That's a really good question because, you know, political reporting was, you know, there's always someone who has a vested interest in telling you something or giving you tips or giving you information, usually against their opponent. So you're able to build sources and you're able to get information out of them, mostly because it helps them because they're trying to take down someone else, honestly. The toughest part about police reporting, especially in Philly, is the right to know laws are so bad in Pennsylvania that in Philadelphia, you could never get police reports. And I asked our lawyers once the Daily News, I said, why don't we get these? And they said, well, according to Pennsylvania law, you're only entitled to police blotter information. And the courts have never defined that. And frankly, we don't want them to. So you were very beholden on, to your police sources to be able to get information, to be able to even write a story beyond Joe shot John before that, you know, the who, what, where, why, when, and how, you know, that what you really needed at the Daily News, you really needed. The Philly Inquirer always wrote very dry, basic John shot Joe stories. We tried to write more stories that told you who this person was. 
And the weird part, though, is if you step across the Philadelphia County border and go into Montgomery County and Pennsylvania, any of the suburban counties, you walk into a press conference and the DA gives you the probable cause affidavit. There's all your information. You can go to your local police station. They'll give you the full police report. And again, I asked our lawyers, last I checked, Philadelphia is in the same state as these other counties that are right on the edge. So how come they do that there, but not in Philly? And she said, basically, they're just being nice. And I asked one of my cop sources that too. I'm like, how come I can go right across the county line into Montgomery County and get a police report and an affidavit and all that? He said, well, because here witnesses get killed when we reveal their names or we reveal their identity. And I'm like, hmm. yeah, okay, that's your excuse. That's fine. It's the toughest beat I've ever had because you really had to build trust with them. And you know, when I first started covering cops, I heard the story of this TV reporter at Channel 10 in Philly who told this one cop the interview was off camera, and then he put him on camera, and afterward, that guy's name was Mud, and no cop would speak to them. So you're always walking this fine line. As a result, it's hard to cover police corruption cases because yeah. then you can get shut down by that same people. I've always understood journalism to be the gathering and dispersing of information that is in the public interest. And one of the things that is of the highest importance to the public interest is power and how power is being exercised and whether or not there are abuses of power. Is that actually true? Is that an idealistic notion of what journalism is? Well, that's how it is supposed to be. We're supposed to be the watchdog for the public. It's basically about holding the powerful accountable. And that's how I always viewed my job. I was never afraid. But it wasn't really until the Bill Cosby scandal I was covering in 2005 when drugging and sexual assault allegations came over the news that I first saw how that isn't the case with other media. In 2005, a woman named Andrea Constand went to the police with an allegation of sexual assault against Bill Cosby. The public investigation that followed inspired many more women to come forward with their own stories of Cosby assaulting them. Nikki Egan reported on the story aggressively from the start. I was a Cosby fan myself. I grew up watching Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids on Saturday morning cartoons. I loved the Cosby show. I thought he was Cliff Huxtable. But, you know, your job as a journalist is supposed to be to put your personal feelings aside and get to the truth. And his lawyer was calling me every day, threatening to sue us. They were sending letters. And the rest of the media really backed off the story because they did not want to tick him off. And they were worried at him being sued. But they went after Andrea Constand with all they had and sexual assault victims, are their names and identities. The media has a tradition of not publishing them without their consent. But soon the media started using her name and photo without her consent. Cosby's people made up lies about her and they ran with it. You know, and I was sitting there going, what in the world is going on? It's like I was living in a parallel universe. I was getting on a lot of national TV shows at night, and one of the bookers told me Cosby's people were pressuring them not to have me on. And that's when I heard the term trading up, which was giving up one story to get a better one. Mm. And so, like, ABC never covered the drugging and sexual assault allegations against Cosby when that was going on, except for they did one story that was basically pro-Cosby. And then, lo and behold, after the DA decided not to charge Cosby, they get the first exclusive TV sit-down with him. He was crisscrossing the country, doing town halls in inner cities, basically lecturing Black people how to behave. And journalists weren't allowed in unless they were invited in. And mm. so they traded up. You know, they covered for him. It's still going on to this day. ABC has still been Cosby's network of choice when he has a message to get out. And I was attacked. 
there was a negative story planted on me in the Philadelphia Weekly. I got an exclusive interview with a second accuser who came forward and she wanted her name and photo used. And they said it was sensationalistic, that it was a he said, she said situation, which of course is most rapes. <laughs> you know, how many other people are in the room when a rape's occurring normally? So it was really, really bad. And the DA was threatening to have me arrested for my stories. So that's when I really started to see how the other media didn't treat it the same way. There's no other news organization in the country that would have let me cover that story the way the Daily News did in 2005. Nikki wrote a book about Cosby's fall from grace called Chasing Cosby. It came out in 2019. Fast forward 14 years later when I'm doing my podcast based on my book, Chasing Cosby. We're in the final stages with the LA Times and their lawyers were freaking out. We had 16 survivors in the podcast. Cosby had been convicted. This is before it had been overturned. And they wanted to take some of the survivors out. They were very worried about being sued. I was sort of surprised because I said, you guys have written stories about each and every one of these women. I mean, this was like 2019, you know, when everything exploded again in 2014, everybody started covering it. And they said, yes, but it'll be all in one piece. I had to fight to keep these stories in. And this is from somebody who had been convicted and somebody who had already been written about in their publication. Hmm. They're so worried about being sued. They don't want to alienate people in power. He was represented by William Morris, which is the biggest talent agency in Hollywood. And if you irritate him, then maybe you don't get access to these other celebrities. But they mm. don't care about like an Amanda Knox because you don't have the resources to sue them. But they care about someone like a Bill Cosby who has deep pockets. And that's what he used to do, threatening to sue, hoping that people will drop the story rather than risk being sued. Yeah. I'm actually really curious to dig a little bit into this idea in the industry of trading up. You said that trading up means that they will suppress one story for the sake of getting the, quote, better story. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk to me a little bit about what qualifies one story as being, quote, better than another in these trading up scenarios, because we'd like to think that the story that is the most truthful would be the better story. Well, trading up, basically, they're trading, telling the stories of the Cosby survivors who were nobodies against getting an exclusive interview with Bill Cosby, who is a mega star. The National Enquirer, which shocker, but they did this too. I just found out there was another Cosby accuser. They'd interviewed Beth Ferrier. And then they took it to Cosby for a response, and then Cosby got them to kill that story in exchange for an exclusive interview with him. And he got to review the story before it ran. He got all this special treatment. And then it later came out because Andre filed a lawsuit against Cosby that there was also in this contract he had with the National Enquirer that they were not allowed to run any negative stories about him attacking women or having sexually assaulting women for two years. And in exchange, they would give him another interview if they wanted it. And my understanding is with the Epstein story all those years later, they don't want to alienate the relationship with the palace and they wanted access to them. So they backed off of these poor girls who were being sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein. Got ya. So the idea that the more valuable interview person is the person who has already a built-in audience attached to them and therefore is going to serve the publication in them benefiting from that built-in audience as opposed to a, quote, nobody who doesn't have an audience built in. Right. It sells newspapers. It sells magazines. It gets viewership. And then it possibly gets you access to other celebrities 
who sell newspapers, who sell magazines, who raise viewership. And that's what it's all about. It's money, money, money. Yeah. Yeah. I've been fascinated by the problems of the incentive structure in media. We see this in all kinds of stories. But I was wondering maybe if we could hone in on true crime and how that built-in economic incentive structure of the media impacts who is telling a true crime story, how they are telling it, and what you've seen the cost being to anyone and everyone who finds themselves at the center of a true crime story. Well, I also think famous people have famous friends who are the people at the very top of the media organizations. For instance, when I went to People, my understanding is Cosby was friends with the guy who was the CEO of Time Warner at the time. All he had to do was pick up the phone and call him, and suddenly a story wasn't appearing anymore. And if, even if you read the bio on Cosby that Mark Whitaker did, after his only son was murdered, all Cosby had to do was pick up the phone and call like the president of CBS and say, I want to do an interview. So it's also at the top of the media power structures, because who are the people that are at the top of these power structures usually but men, and usually white men? and they protect each other. With sexual assault especially, there's definitely a sense of, wow, this could happen to me. Some woman can make something up because that's what they always think, that of course a woman's making it up because of course every woman grows up wanting to become famous for being raped. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that always, you know, gets me about that because yes, there are some women I think who when they have affairs enjoy the publicity and enjoy the attention if it's with someone famous. But I I just don't believe that there are that many that want to be famous for saying they were raped by somebody. I just don't. When I first came home from prison, my high school English teacher asked me to come and talk to her class about trial by media and all of that. And I was very early on. I had never, like, talked to anyone about the experience before. It was just a bunch of kids. And I told them a little bit about what I had been through. And when they finally raised their hands to ask questions, the first question that I got asked was, what is it like to be famous? As if... I was some kind of celebrity who was famous for some awesome thing that I did. And it's like, no, 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 I'm I'm not a celebrity. I'm not like I'm, quote, famous for something that I had nothing to do with that is horrible. And I've seen this time and time again that one of the like enduring consequences of true crime is that people become defined by either the worst thing they've ever done, the worst thing that they were ever accused of, the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And they become like encapsulated in like amber, but that amber is the worst experience of their life. And nobody (laughs) wants to be stuck in the worst experience of their life forever. No one wants to be defined by the worst experience of their life ever. And yet that is one of the enduring consequences of true crime. Have you heard of the Jeffrey McDonald case? He was convicted of murdering his wife and two children in 1970 at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Now, the trial didn't happen until nine years later, but it became a fatal vision case because Joe McGinnis, this author who I used to admire but now realize was just very sleazy, wrote a book. And I was fascinated because supposedly it was this journalist who thought this guy was innocent. Then he came to believe he was guilty. I read Fatal Vision. I thought it was the truth. The case dragged on for years with all of his appeals, and I thought he was guilty. 
And then in 2012, he had an appeals hearing, like a, basically a whole hearing with the new evidence they dug up. And I started covering it. And I met his wife and I interviewed him a few times. And the more I dug into it, the more I came to believe he was innocent. He described four people coming into his home that night. And two of those people ended up confessing over and over again over the years that they didn't. Wow. But in the media's mind, because they'd read Joe McGinnis's book 30 years prior, even though there had been two more books that painted a picture of him as innocent, the Joe McGinnis thing was so famous that that is what is stuck in people's minds. That was stuck in my editor's minds. And I'm like, no, I, I think this guy's telling the truth. It was one of my last stories I did for people. I did a big cover story with him in 2017. And I got in a lot of arguments with my editors over it because they just were convinced he was guilty because they'd read Fatal Vision 30 years prior. And oh, yeah, the police said he was. I love that argument too. The police said he was. The police held a press conference. Please say he was. And he said to me, he said, you know what? I know what? Even if my conviction gets overturned and I get exonerated, there are still people out there who are going to think I'm guilty. And I'm just going to have to live with that. And that really struck with me because when the media piles on you like that and paints you as guilty and paints you as guilty and paints you as guilty, you really can't undo that damage. Nikki knows all about media pylons because she's seen them up close, including in the case of Aaron Quinn and Denise Huskins. Their story is a harrowing one. The couple were accosted in their home and Denise was kidnapped for two days and sexually assaulted. After she was released, police accused them of making up the story and their reputation was smeared in the media. Denise was painted like the real life Gone Girl it wasn't until the perpetrator of the kidnapping struck again that Aaron and Denise's names were cleared. Nikki co-authored a book with them about their experience called Victim F. There are still people out there who saw the initial coverage about them making the story up. They didn't see the follow-up press conference where they caught one of the perpetrators and said they're innocent. So the damage it does is just hard to undo. And I don't know if you've experienced that too, where people still, even though you were exonerated, even though the other guy was caught, people still think you did it because the media coverage. And that's why I thought your documentary was so good, because it really, really showed how all that happened in your case with that Daily Mail reporter. Yeah, I think the filmmakers did a really good job to recognize that there was a bigger story than just did this co-ed murder her roommate kind of thing. Like, I think they understood that a perfect storm was happening and that perfect storm was the media that was feeding into this story and perpetuating the story in a big way. One of the things that I've noticed is I've been talking a lot about the consequences of media and true crime and trial by media, but also just the fact that, like, the worst experiences of people's lives that come out of nowhere and just hit them like a train come to be the stories that we perpetually think of them as. Like, when people think of my name and my face, they think of the murder of Meredith Kircher by Rudy Gaudet. But my face and my name is the one that is associated with that, even though I had nothing to do with it. Right. And... I have talked a lot about the problems and the enduring consequences and how people's worst experiences are turned into content and more disgracefully entertainment content. And I felt like for a long time that I was sort of shouting into a void, like some people would hear it and be like, you know what, Amanda's saying some really smart things about that. But it didn't ever like hit anyone until last year when I wrote a piece for The Atlantic about the Stillwater film. The movie Stillwater is about a father whose daughter is charged with murdering her roommate while studying abroad. Allison came here for college, and that's where she met this girl, Lena. One night she found Lena dead and called the police. 
It is clearly based on Amanda's life story, and the filmmakers admitted as such. Amanda wrote an essay for The Atlantic about what it feels like to have her name and identity continually co-opted for entertainment products without her consent. The reaction was huge, much bigger than we expected. I was really surprised because this is not the first time I've talked about this, but for some reason, suddenly people were like, oh, wait a second. And I wonder, is there a shift happening? Are people becoming a little more sophisticated with their understanding about not just true crime, but also are people becoming more attuned or sophisticated about content creation and how we're not just being told a story, we're being sold a story? Your op-ed had a real impact. I was toward the end of negotiations with a network who wanted to do a scripted version of Chasing Cosby. And one of my biggest concerns was I wanted it to be true to what happened. I didn't care about how I was represented. I don't know if I would even was even going to be in it as a character, but I wanted to make sure the survivors were treated well because I do still have this deep distrust of Hollywood when it comes to Cosby because they protected him for so long. They enabled him for so long. And then your op-ed came out and people at this network sent it to me. And they were very concerned about this. And I, and actually, I was in contact with Andrea Constan, and she's now got her own book. What I was going to ask them to do if this actually went forward is to maybe option the life rights of some of the other survivors so that they could get, so this just wouldn't be me getting something out of this. But after that, you know, they sent me that and then the negotiations just fell away. So at least in my case, you, you had an impact. We've developed a friendship over the last couple of years because I was the only journalist who was reporting the truth back in 2005 while all of the others were piling on her. So she is the one who should tell her story, but I do think there's another story to be told. But since you did that, they got very concerned after that and the whole thing just fell away. Interesting. So That's reassuring. I, so I think you, you did make some people think. And I finally saw Stillwater recently when it came on one of my channels. And I'm like, oh, no wonder she was mad. <laughs> like, I don't understand why they wouldn't just option your book and turn it into a scripted series. Like, that's easy, Well, they right? didn't want to pay me. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, they well, didn't want my consent. <laughs> right. Right. But then, of course, they turned it and made the girl guilty. They skewed it and they just they made it dishonest. They made it wrong. I mean, it was great you spoke up because that's always been my fear with scripted anyway. I watched the scripted version of the Unabomber with the FBI profiler, who I know, who was the forensic linguist who helped, who was the idea it was to put this Ted Kaczynski's manifesto out there to try to identify him. And mm. there were so many scenes in there where they're talking and they're meeting. And I was in touch with Jim afterward. He goes, oh, no, I never met him. I never met him in person, but the, the bulk of the miniseries is him having these conversations with him. And even they did it with the Central Park Five. They mm. fictionalized some things and now they're getting sued because they had Linda Fairstein, the prosecutor, saying, round up all the black guys or whatever. And, you know, she right. didn't say that, you know, right. and sometimes I don't even know why they do it. There's another case I know of where somebody was going through a scripted version and their case is a truth is stranger than fiction one too. Like, why would you want to fictionalize it? It is so crazy to begin with. And they, the way they did it in their pilot was so triggering and so awful for them that the people pulled out of the project. And I was just like, I don't even understand why the writers would do that because your case mm. doesn't need that. Your case is, is just so compelling all on its own. You don't need to fictionalize it. Yeah. Is there like an official code of ethics when it comes to true crime journalism that exists? And if not, why not? 
I think there should be. I, I don't think there is. I think it's all about ratings. But when we were doing the podcast, the profiler that I knew that I had quoted in my book, Mary Ellen O'Toole, couldn't go on camera because of her own deal. So we were also filming these because we were trying to do a docuseries, which no one thought because he's Bill Cosby. So I asked this one expert if he would be on it. He said, yeah, my, my rate is 500 an hour. And I said, do you do that? Would you do media interviews? He goes, no, but only for crime is entertainment. And I'm like, that's not what this is. Like my book, if you read it, I didn't want it to be about the crimes. It's trying to explain it. It's how did this happen? I raised these big picture questions in it. How could someone who did so much good do so much evil? Why are the claims of sexual assault victims so inherently distrust? I mean, my end notes are almost a book within a book because I cited so much because I wanted it to be bigger than just a true crime book. And then even with Aaron and Denise, we did a lot of that in the book. Their story is very compelling, don't get me wrong, but we raised some issues about you know, they felt very fortunate to be able to afford private attorneys because, you know, they could have been forced into accepting a plea because they would have had some overworked public defender if they had been charged. We raised some big picture issues there. Anything I do true crime, I want it to do some good. You know, I've mm. got some podcasts in the works and I want to like get publicity for unsolved missing children cases or give some person some attention for solving some cases that they did. I don't want to capitalize on people's tragedies to make a living. I mean, it sounds like one of your guiding principles is true crime for good, not true crime for the sake of true crime. Right. True, or giving a voice to someone who has no voice, who wants to tell their story and doesn't know how to do it. I used to get a lot of the big exclusive interviews at people on the big crime, like Andrew Madoff, Bernie Madoff's son. He finally had a point in time where he was ready to talk, and it was sadly because his cancer came back. But that's another one. I actually believed him and his brother did not know what their dad were doing because Bernie operated on a different floor. He kept them out. They did the trading. He kept them out of the financial stuff. And I do believe they didn't know it, but to, none of my editors did. They all believed he was guilty. So yeah, but sometimes you also find two people come to you when they're ready. People have lost a family member. So those were the things I kind of specialized in is doing those types of stories because the breaking news crime I hated. Any reporter who says, oh, I get a charge out of going to a mass shooting. I'm like, there's something wrong with you. There's really yeah. something wrong with you. I've lost so many people myself. I know what hell these families are going through. And yeah. the journalists on these scenes, like at Newtown, the governor put state troopers at the homes of all 24 victims and reporters were disguising themselves as family members to get into the homes. Oh my God. You know, when wow. the Boston Marathon thing happened, they misidentified one of the bombers as someone else and put his name on the cover of the New York papers. And it wow. turned out it was not him. So there's also this rush to just get things out, break news and be first and not necessarily correct. And I don't know if you've read Dave Cohen's book, Columbine. He actually covered the Columbine massacre when it happened. And then 10, 15 years later, wrote a book and kind of corrected all of the misinformation that was out there. And he himself was involved in some of it. Like they weren't goth, like everybody said they were. Like all of these things that had been reported initially that turned out to be wrong. Mm. That's another good guiding principle is it's not about being first. It's about getting it right. Right. So again, goes back to the incentive structures that you have in media where it's like, how do they make money? They make money by putting out the most scandalous story or the story with the highest profile person who's being interviewed the fastest, not the most right story when they have the right information. And it's so interesting how the way that ethical true crime journalism should be and the way that it is, is like there's just like a chasm between the two and you have to build an entire new infrastructure, it seems like, to do it right. 
I want to ask you if you think true crime is here to stay. And if so, is it doomed to just perpetuate the same harms? Are we doomed? Right. Because, you know, there is some good that it can do. It draws a lot of attention. My stories have gotten people freed from prison. It's helped catch killers. You get a lot of publicity on a case. I know social media helps these days. But there's a way to do it. Like, I always ask the tough questions. You know, I didn't just take what the police said, although it was hard because, like I said, I had no paperwork. So I think we need better right to know laws so that reporters have affidavits in front of them so they can look at the evidence themselves. Look what happened with Aaron and Denise. The police held a press conference that night called the whole thing a hoax. And you watch the press conference, the reporters are laughing. They're joking with them. They're like, how much was the ransom? You know, they, they were making jokes about it. No one was asking the questions of like, why would two people like Aaron and Denise, who were physical therapists, who had devoted their lives to helping damaged people, why they would become involved in something like this. You know, ask the tough questions. We blindly trust the police when they tell us someone committed a crime, but when the police are in an officer-involved shooting and they potentially committed it, then we never believe them. And actually, there are times when the police are not at fault in those shootings. It's not probably the majority of the time, but we just automatically go to, oh, the police are wrong. You know, the police killed someone, some poor defenseless person. But when they hold a press conference and say, we arrested this person, they committed this crime, they're just like, okay, the police said so. And it's the same thing with coroners and medical examiners, you know, coroners that that determine manner and cause of death. A lot of coroners are funeral directors. They're not even doctors. And once a case is determined an accident or something, there's nothing you can do. There's also a category called undetermined which basically Mm. means we don't know, but there's this group of detectives who have tried to tie these cases all together and have done a good job doing it. But because the coroner or the medical examiner said this was an accident, then they must be right. They don't make Mm. mistakes. So we don't question law enforcement enough with their decision-making. We don't question prosecutors enough. We don't question coroners and medical examiners enough. And I think that has to change. Why is it that we don't do that? I think a lot of journalists, especially in the national level, have never done police reporting at a big level. In the national level, they went straight up to political reporting through the track. They never did police reporting or they didn't do it for very long. And they also have a disdain for it, that it's beneath them, you know, covering cops. That's what you do as a rookie, you know. And so and you can even see it at some of the covid press conferences. I saw an article where someone wrote about this, how the questions that the White House press corps was asking at this press conferences were all political questions because none of them had been like health reporters or medical reporters or anything like that. They weren't asking good, intuitive questions. It was all political or, or things designed to get a rise out of Trump so then they could get their headline. And, you know, then that becomes the story. Honestly, I still can't believe CNN kept people like Jim Acosta on that beat after he wrote a book about how much he hates Trump. And they do this just to bring attention to themselves. And they're still allowed to cover that beat. It's just wrong. Hmm. There just seems to be no accountability, especially at the national levels anymore with journalists. That's what's sad. And one thing when I was teaching journalism for a little while at magazine writing at Temple that I tried to teach my students is go into every story you cover with an open mind. Because that is the worst thing that goes on now in journalism today, where journalists have made up their mind about what has happened and they refuse to change it. You know, I thought Bill Cosby was Cliff Huxtable, but I had to keep an open mind and look into the allegations against him. I thought Jeffrey McDonald was guilty, but the more I had to keep an open mind and, you know, do in my own investigation and come to a different conclusion. But that just isn't done these days. I don't know if it's the rush of news. And, you know, it wasn't easy. I had to fit all of this stuff in between a million other assignments. But people's lives are at stake. And I think true crime is one of the most, the beat that has the potential to do the most damage to an innocent person's life, whether they're a victim who's being 
accused of lying about a crime or a person who's been accused of a crime they didn't commit, or just the damage you can do by misreporting something and you hurt a victim's family with something you wrote that wasn't quite right. You know, you can really do a lot of damage with this type of journalism, but I don't think they care. Who is it that rises to the top of the true crime reporting world and why are they so popular? TV. I mean, TV is the main way it happens, getting their face on TV. I mean, that, and Nancy Grace has her whole story, supposedly, of her fiance who was murdered and all of that. But she was one of the ones that really ripped Aaron and Denise, like raked them through the coals and making fun of them and making fun of Denise. And she's never apologized, never. And she wanted us on her podcast after CrimeCon and Aaron and Denise are like, no no, we're not going on it. And then, then the podcast episode she did was really weird and basically still painted them as guilty almost. Hmm. So, um, but TV, I mean, TV turns people into megastars, whether you're on TV because like you, you were accused of a crime and then convicted of a crime and your face is everywhere or because you're a talking head that is very good on a show. So they give you your own show and then you become famous. I mean, I knew local TV reporters in Philly. We'd go out and people would be all over them. I'm like, they're local TV reporters. What is going on here? But, mm. oh, I saw you on TV. So. Mm. so even just, it sounds like it's not even the fact that she's provocative. She's just recognizable. Right, right. And there's just this love affair with her. It's just like the people that still think Bill Cosby's innocent because they've seen him on TV or on their movie screens for 50 years. I mean, that's what I always say, that he still has hundreds of thousands of followers on all of his social media, and most people still think he's innocent. Most people are able to believe that Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein are guilty because they didn't know who they were before these scandals broke. But there are still so many people that refuse to believe Bill Cosby's innocent because they saw him on TV, mm. starting with I Spy back in the 1960s, and then his comedy albums and Fat Albert, all this stuff. The celebrity worship in this country is huge. And yeah, you're on TV, you're a star. And so I think there's a lot of good that can be done. But I hate you know, even at People, when I was there, I saw the tone of the coverage change a lot. It used to be very sensitive and very respectful to the victims. Toward the end, it became very sensationalistic. And even my Jeffrey McDonald story, they insisted on a lead where it was about the blood dripping from the daughter's hands. And I'm like, really? This is like a four-year-old little girl. And there's just so many, only so many times they call it pushback in journalism. When you push back against something you don't like and editors, they don't like that. And mm. then you're the one who ends up paying the price for it. Right regret standing up for any of those things, but they want just people who do what they say, not people who question what mm. they do. So there should be a lot of hard conversations going on, but as long as these shows do well in the ratings and people are watching them, they're not going away. One of the more fascinating things we were discovering is that quite a few people who make true crime content don't consume much of it. In that, we weren't alone. I think that's a personal choice. I don't judge people that watch it. It's just not personally what I go to. I hear you. Not us either. <laughs> yeah, we're not really true crime people at all. It's not. <laughs> but, which is ironic because I think you guys make a lot of content talking about true crime, I right? Know. Are you exploring how, <laughs> in this bizarre way, because your story had so much incredible attention from all over the world that now you are seen as part of the true crime universe and you have then worked in it because it is available work for you that gets attention. When you work in this space, it gets attention from people. What is it like for you guys turning the camera around on y'all for a second? Mm -hmm. You guys are sort of part of this industry as well. Oh yeah, we are absolutely like participating in it. You're absolutely right that there are 
opportunities to create things that are available to me in this space that just simply aren't available to me in other spaces because I tend to get stuck in that box. And just from a storytelling reality aspect, like what kind of things do I have access to? Who wants to talk to me? Like I have people coming to me constantly wanting to connect with me over their own true crime experiences, whatever side of it they fall on. And so it's a lot easier for me to discover stories even just in a practical way. So part of it's that part of it is a personal processing thing. Like if I'm looking at someone else's story, I'm also processing my own experience through the lens of somebody else. And I think that that gives me a unique ability to empathize and approach stories with not just an ethical standpoint, but even just an understanding of why does this matter? So I think that is one reason why we keep coming back to it. I'd um, rather do food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we also very much love food. <laughs> but isn't that interesting that from being a subject of one of these things, that now you guys are telling stories about <laughs> true crime? I mean, it's it's kind of insane, isn't it? There is an ethical component for us. It's also like... Seeing it done poorly, uh, it's so it maddening. One of the things that motivates us to want to like make an example of what it can look like when you do it right, and when you mm. approach a story with an eye to who has the most at stake in the telling of that story, that you always have different stakes, but sometimes the size of your stakes are relatively very different. When someone approaches us, when we approach somebody else, we know that the crime victim has way more at stake than we do for another episode of our podcast. And if they decide after doing an interview with us that, you know what, I've decided I'd rather just sit with this quietly instead of putting it out into the world, we're not in the business of saying, well, you signed a release, so sorry. We'll just tell a different story. I don't want to add more trauma to the world because I need to make a podcast episode. So it's not the most efficient way to have a storytelling career, right? And like you, I think both of us are much more interested in why people believe things that they believe. We're interested in the meta level of how the stories get told. And that's really what this mini series is all about. It's that meta exploration of why is everyone so obsessed with this? Why indeed? We've been circling that question since we started this mini-series. What motivates people to spend time, money, and energy diving into gruesome murder investigations? Why does true crime dominate the podcast world? What lures people to CrimeCon? Next time, we're diving into the world of true crime fandom. The merch, the conventions, the obsessions, the drama. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And if you've been listening this long and still haven't left us a five-star review, we applaud your refusal to rush to judgment. The world's got enough hot takes, and we need more thoughtful, informed opinions. Blood Money, a Labyrinth's miniseries, is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written, edited, and produced by us and Sophia Gates, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp.